Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, he walks in a month. Why? Hey guys, Mo Long here, and welcome to the Celluloid Fiends podcast. You can follow us at Celluloid Fiends on Twitter and Facebook and Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. If you haven't already done so, head over to iTunes and leave us a rating, leave us a review, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite podcast aggregator is. If you want to follow me, you can check me out at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. And you can read my writing on film at cupofmo.com. And you can check out my writing about tech and various gadgets at techuplife.com. And here in the studio, I've got... Hey, Celluloid Fiends. It's Wes Clifton here. I'm uh, I'm a writer. I'm a musician. I'm a film nerd. Uh, you can check me out on Instagram at Cliff Weston. Uh, and if you want to check out some of my writing, you can uh, check me out at uh, wdclifton.wordpress.com. And it is always a pleasure to be able to, to talk film with you, Wes. And Wes is actually responsible for our Instagram account. So thank you very much for that. Not a problem, man. Just sitting at home, posting pictures. Love it. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all sitting at home. We are all sitting at home. So tonight we are talking about the 1978 classic Foul Play. This was written and directed by Colin Higgins. It had a budget of $5 million, according to AFI Catalog, and it made $45 million at the box office, as per Wikipedia. It currently holds a 73% critic rating and a 68% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. And the plot revolves around the recently divorced librarian Gloria Mundy, Goldie Hawn, who is driving home to San Francisco from a party, and she picks up a hitchhiker, Bob Bruce Solomon, who invites her to a movie that evening. Before getting out of her car, Bob leaves his pack of cigarettes with Gloria under the pretense that he's trying to quit smoking. Unbeknownst to Gloria, Bob has hidden a roll of film in the pack of cigarettes. Arriving late to the movie theater, a dying Bob warns Gloria to beware of the dwarf. However, while she's summoning the movie theater manager, the body inexplicably disappears. Gloria becomes embroiled in a plot to assassinate the Pope and seeks help from Lieutenant Tony Carlson, Chevy Chase. So this was uh, this was a mo pick. I picked yeah. this one. This is uh, and- this is the moment I told you earlier that I was going to steal one of your questions and I was going to say, yo, this is a mo pick. Mo, why did you pick this movie? <laughs> you know, I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. So I watched this when I was pretty young. I, I think it was maybe seven or eight. I, I don't recall exactly. And I just always remember enjoying it. And I started thinking about it recently. 
because I remember it having this kind of weird plot about killing the Pope, but being very comedic. And I realized, you know, there's probably a lot that as a kid watching this went over my head. And sure enough, that was <laughs> definitely true. <laughs> In fact, there was a lot that I did not recall about this movie. So I'm, I'm glad I picked it. And this was your first time watching this movie. This was not only my first time watching this movie. This was my first time having heard about this movie, which I found very strange. Like the whole experience of you telling me about this movie and then me like watching it and kind of reading a little bit about it has been a little weird to me just because I've been so surprised that like somehow this movie has entirely escaped my attention as well as other people that I've asked about the film since you mentioned it. Like it just seems like it's just, it's under so many people's radar. It is weirdly underappreciated. And I think one of the reasons that it's so strange is as I was writing up the show notes, I discovered this was nominated for seven right. Golden Globes. And an Academy Pic- Award. Yeah. Uh, best Picture, Musical, or Comedy, Best Actress, Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, Best Actor, Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, Best Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture, Best Original Song. And even looking at its Rotten Tomatoes stats, it has a pretty positive reception so it just boggles my mind that considering how well it was received at the time and how it was award nominated and the the cast featuring goalie Hawn and chevy chase but also featuring burgess meredith yeah um, brian dennehy and Dudley Moore, I'm I'm just shocked that and, this movie is not more well known. And loved Billy Barty. Billy Barty's in this movie too. Wait, who was who was he in this? Um, he was not the dwarf, but he was the dwarf. He was the Bible salesman. <laughs> he was the Bible salesman. Oh, you okay? I will talk about him some more later, but I want to stay on this question because I found it. I just found the obscurity, like you said, it being nominated for so many awards. I read that this was nominated, uh, like it tied with a couple other movies for the most like uh, nominations with no wins or something in a single go round. Uh, One of those movies being The Godfather Part 3. I wish I had a better memorization of that exact stat, but I was so surprised at, at it being nominated for so many things. And like you just said, this has a an all-star cast. I mean, basically for the time, it's crazy. But it is available on no streaming services that I could find. Like, it's just, I, I hope that people, in order to listen to the, the podcast, can maybe they have a video store like we have with the Video Vortex, or maybe they can get it on, like, you're always talking about DVD Netflix. But uh, it's just, it's really baffling to me. That is, it seems like it was, for the most part, pretty well critically received. And it's just a ghost i don't know it's it's crazy i'm just absolutely astounded at how it has faded into obscurity like this chevy chase's first starring role in a film see i mean i I just i feel like this should have some following i feel like it should be at least partially well known and just almost no one has ever heard of this movie yeah and you're right. It, it's it is on no streaming services. DVD Netflix does have it, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give them a plug. If you have DVD Netflix, you should add this to your queue right away. If you don't have DVD Netflix, you should sign up and add this to your queue. 
And if you have a video store in your area, I know in this day and age that's pretty rare, but we actually have one here. Please support your local video store. It's one of the most important institutions in America. <laughs> there are not many of them left, but if you have one, go look for it. Yeah, uh, this is definitely a good one to rent. Or if you find a copy available to buy, buy it. Yeah. Yeah, you can buy it on, on Amazon, and I don't think it's that expensive. No, I I don't believe it is. So I think this is pure conjecture, but I I do think this might be one of the reasons why it's sort of fallen under the radar. What genre is this movie? I mean, the Wikipedia article was pretty confused about what genre it is. Yeah. What do you think? So I, I it's it's very Hitchcockian. That was I think my first impression upon revisiting this movie, but it just unites so many different seemingly disparate genres. Uh, you've got, th- you've got thriller in there. You've got rom-com, you've got black comedy. Cause it was, it was pretty dark in spots. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if that is one of the reasons why uh, yeah. I, I do feel like it was successful, but at times I did feel like maybe the tone was a little, it was a little off and certain pieces didn't mesh. And I'm curious kind of what, if you felt like it was jarring at any time. Well, neither of us were alive when this movie came out. So it's hard to say if it would have been jarring. So I would say the broader genre of this film is comedy. Like if you had to put it, if you were working in the video store and you had to put it somewhere, you're going to probably put it in comedy, right? I mean, for me, that's what I think. So I wonder, because comedy, like any other film genre, has evolved, or some would maybe argue devolved, over the years um, to the point where comedies now, and that's one thing I kept thinking the whole time I was watching this, not in a bad way, but this seemed like a very old fashioned form of comedy movie that you would see back in the seventies and even in the eighties to some degree of a comedy movie that was more based on narrative and just kind of humorous situations. Like it seemed like what drove this movie was story and narrative, but the, the comedy just went along with it. Um, Whereas a lot of comedies, the way it kind of progressed is that a lot of comedies now the laughs are first and foremost, even to the point where you get to in later years. And and once again, this is going to sound insulting, but I don't mean it to be. I feel like for a while when I was sort of coming of age or whatever, like kind of nonsense comedy was funny, where just like the whole point of the movie was silly people saying silly things and doing silly things, which I actually love. I don't mean that insultingly, but it just seemed like a very old fashioned type of comedy to me that, that was more narrative driven than strictly driven by like bits. I would absolutely agree with that assessment and add that the entire time I was rewatching it, I was just laughing out loud during so many different segments. So it's fun. There were some segments that made me laugh out loud, one in particular, but I will say that I don't know that I found it to be like a knee slapper. Like, And I wondered if it would be different were I watching it. Like I remembered when, when you and I and Donnie I went to see um, Trading Places at the Retro a while back. And like, granted, Trading Places was early 80s, but I mean, that was a knee slapper. People were dying. And I honestly wondered if how some of these jokes would have played out in the era. Because when this came out, I mean, you saw movies in the theater, you know, or maybe when they played on TV, but, you know, there was no home video or anything like that. 
Um, I would have liked to have seen this and maybe one day I can in the theater. Yeah, I, I would love to see this one back on the big screen because I, I think it deserves kind of a revisionist history where it gets discovered again. Mm-hmm. And and kind of speaking of which, did you know anything about the director, Colin yo, Higgins? Yo, nothing. And that's the reason why, like, when you... I, I looked at a few of his films, and I have seen a few of his films, but so this, like I said, this was a Mopic, and so I'm, I'm really excited to hear kind of some of your thoughts about this movie. It's... a I won't say it's outside my wheelhouse necessarily. I mean, I love comedies. I love eighties and eighties uh, comedies particularly, but like, um, I, I felt like this movie was a little bit outside of my, my realm. So I, I'm curious. I know nothing about the director really. I, I frankly don't really know much about him. And the only film that he's directed that I've actually seen is foul play, but he oh. uh, only directed foul play nine to five and best little horror house in Texas. Oh, so never mind. I've seen all of his films. <laughs> <laughs> if that's the case. I've seen all of his films. And he wrote Harold and Maude, the devil's daughter, silver streak, foul play nine to five and the best little horror house in Texas. Okay. Well, never mind. I'm an expert on his uh, filmography, apparently. <laughs> and so uh, getting back to what you were saying about, you know, if it's if it's within my wheelhouse, I, I feel like it unites, interestingly, two of my favorite genres. I love thrillers and specifically I'm a huge Hitchcock uh, fan. You know, I, I love everything that Hitchcock did from kind of his more well-known fare like North by Nor- Northwest and Vertigo to some of his more underappreciated stuff like Rope. And it fuses that with comedy and more specifically very slapstick comedy that ended up being very clever and it was an unusual pairing but i really enjoyed it and i also thought that for the most part it was very it was very taut throughout Uh, specifically i loved a lot of the dialogue and just sort of the zany situations that would occur because like you like you put it and I think it was the perfect way to phrase it. This is a very narrative driven movie and a lot of the humor derives from situations. It's just very situational humor. Hey, um, Mo, are you sitting down? Yeah. OK, because I have to I have to confess something at this point in the podcast and I knew it was going to come up and I'm ashamed. OK. And what I'm going to tell you is. I've not seen a lot of Hitchcock movies and I, I am ashamed to admit that I know it's something that I should have done and I have no excuse uh, for myself. Honestly, I, I can't explain myself. I've seen uh, psycho many times and I've seen strangers on a train and I think that's it. Um, and I wondered after I found out that this movie was basically an homage to Hitchcock, I wondered if that's why some of the humor and some of the parody went over my head. And now the world knows my shame, and I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I think you've given me some Fulci to watch uh, as homework, yeah. so I'm going to give you some Hitchcock to watch as homework. Okay. We'll, we'll do a little trade. You know, that's that's very possible, because uh, I think if you are familiar with Hitchcock films, you probably do get a little bit more out of this. But I, I also just really enjoyed a lot of the kind of doublespeak that was going on in the film. And uh, I I, want to talk about favorite scenes. So now might actually be a good time to do that. Uh, So sure. 
did so did you have any favorite scenes in here i think i know what you're about to say yeah yeah hands down i had a favorite scene in this it's the scene that i watched this movie honestly this has been a really busy week for me and so i watched it in parts which is not necessarily the best way to watch a movie but i was watching it really late at night and there was there was the one scene that uh where stanley tibbetts the really the standout star of this film in my opinion takes um gloria back to his apartment and they he is a bumbling wannabe swinger and she's just trying to hide out because she's being pursued by um whitey jackson one of the bad guys and uh and she's just trying to hide out but he thinks that she has is, has come on to him and, and she's very fast about her come ons and so he's working out this whole situation and she's looking out the window because she's all scared and he's working out this whole situation he's playing uh what's he he's playing the bgs right and he's got like a disco ball spinning and he's got like this these like blow up sex dolls and this crazy bed and he's like playing adult films on the wall and just everything he was saying i was roll i was laughing so hard so i know that that's probably going to be your favorite too but that scene was hilarious to me yeah that was my favorite scene as well hands down although i have a few others that i really appreciated as well uh so that entire scene i think is just a masterpiece not only in this film but in cinema in general so the build-up to that is gloria like you mentioned is attacked by uh, whitey jackson in the in, in the library it was a uh, Whitey Jackson with the chloroform in the library, if you will. Well, oh, yeah, sure. reference. <laughs> and uh, so she uh, escapes by hitting him with her umbrella and she goes into this bar and, and she picks up Stanley and she goes back to his place and he starts playing music. And the song he starts playing is Stan Alive because she's yeah. trying to stay alive. Oh, I didn't. Even yeah. Yeah. That's so I, I just I thought that was a really kind of clever meta moment because obviously Stanley doesn't know that, but the audience knows. And then it starts out where they're clearly miscommunicating and Stanley thinks that she's coming on to him and she's just trying to not get killed. And then it just progressively keeps getting more and more and more over the top from the the bar in a that's in a piano to the bed that comes down out of the wall and there's a mirror above the bed and uh the bedspread had a heart and it said i can't remember what it said but it said something on Uh, it it said i can't remember either man i want to say it said something like say yes or something crazy like it it said something weird like it was something it was something bonkers and it just every time you think it can't get more outrageous it just keeps one upping itself, and also just the 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 dialogue that they're having there. Yes, where they're just completely missing each other's meanings, and entirely. And yeah. I think another scene, and that's actually sort of a pattern throughout the film that you see in a lot of its main that, scenes. Before we moved on from that scene, I just wanted to say one thing that really made me laugh in that scene was at the end when she does like turn around and realize what's going on, and he's like all embarrassed. I don't know, just his whole, his whole. 
I'm not super familiar with Dudley Moore, and he just made me laugh so hard. But there's one scene, uh, one line you could almost miss it. So he's got these like blow up sex dolls, and when he's trying to like real quickly hide all the stuff that he's drug out in his love shack, he um, one of the sex dolls like takes off uh, through the air, floating, and he grabs it and he says. Oh, he, under his breath, he says, oh, I bought this for my nieces. I don't know. I thought that was so funny. Like, because it's a balloon. I Like, he's trying, I don't know. I just thought, like, what a weird line. I, I did catch that line. And it just, it was just <laughs> so bizarre. And I, I love, I, I, like you, I'm not too familiar with Dudley Moore, his uh, filmography. But I thought he was perfectly cast in this role. And he he actually might be my favorite character in this entire film. Oh, yeah. I think he deserved yes. top billing. Uh, and uh, we'll, I'll, I'll get to that. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about him in a moment. Another scene though, that I think the double speak was really prominent was in the movie theater. And so Gloria goes and she's watching these two noir films and, and Bob shows up and he's right. been, uh, I guess stabbed, but he's bleeding onto the popcorn and he's throwing out all these ominous statements such as someone's going to get killed. And of course the whole time Gloria, it just thinks that he is talking about what's going on in the movie. And she's like, well, yeah. And starts talking about the plot of the movie. And then she's like, call the police. He's like, call the police. And she goes, well, so-and-so already did. And start talking about the plot of the movie again. And I was just cracking up during that scene as well. Yeah, that's, it was really well written. I, I, I like that kind of stuff too. Like the, the, just the, when people are missing each other's meanings, I, I think that's really, a, I like clever humor like that. It's really interesting to me. And this movie had a lot of it. Like you said, it had it in spades. Yeah. And cause I think humor is a very, oftentimes underappreciated genre and i think clever humor especially can be difficult to pull off and i thought the script really showed that that clever humor and i think another area that it was pretty evident was was your favorite character wes stay in the man oh yeah stanley tibbetts yeah so he ended up actually being a unifying thread throughout pretty much the whole movie i know i loved it every time he would show up i would be like oh it's him again i was so excited every time and and kind of similar to his to his room where you think okay there's no way it can get any more crazy (laughs) almost every scene you're thinking there's no way stan's gonna show up again and yet he does yeah i loved it so uh do do you want to recap all the different ways that he was roped back into this zany plot let me see if I can try to remember. Like at one point she found her way into like a massage parlor, but it like was a massage parlor with a, with an implication and like, uh, and he's in there, right. He's in there. See, seeing about getting an implication and, uh, and she busts in and there's this whole comedic thing where he's like, are you following me? Was, was that the next time that he showed up or did I miss one? I, I think that was the next time he showed up. Yeah. Like so, so he's in there once again. He's a wannabe swinger, just on the prowl for ladies. But he uh, he's in there trying to. I guess, I guess the implication is he's trying to, you know, maybe pay for some services. But it was just really funny to me because she busted up in there, and then uh, at the end, he is. So the movie ends. Um, I'll probably mispronounce the name of the opera, but the the Mikado, the the Mikado Mikado, uh, is a, is the opera that it all ends up at, and. Uh, he is the conductor of the orchestra 
at the end, which I thought was really funny. Yeah, I I loved that. And that was one I, I did not see coming at all. And then they panned to him and I was like, it's, oh my God, it's Stan. They brought him back in. Uh, I know. And then one thing that just cracked me up was uh, at the massage parlor. Again, he does a, he does a completely 180 and just tries to deny everything like he did when he was at his apartment. And when he's dragged back into the police station, uh, he, <laughs> he says something like, I was just trying to get a massage. I hurt my back. Oh yeah, right. I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, I, I really felt like he just kind of stole every single scene that he was in. Yeah, uh, his character was was just really funny the way he was written and was really well acted. Like really, well, I don't know. He made me laugh re- repeatedly, and it's saying something because I grew up being a really big Chevy Chase fan, and it's saying something that I've talked so much about how much Dudley Moore was making me laugh in this movie, and I haven't really mentioned Chevy Chase yet. Um, which was another thing that shocked me about the film, by the way, was that. It was like 30 minutes into the movie before you really saw much of Chevy Chase, just a little bit at the first. And then it's like 30 minutes in before you ever really see him again. Yeah, it was pretty surprising, particularly because he and Goldie Hawn both had top billing. Although I think at the time they were the that this movie came out, they were the two most well-known cast members. But still, it was really bizarre, especially because he it starts out where the two of them are both at a at a party together. And he even says something to her. He starts talking to her at this party and says something like, do you want to go have a shower? Yes. <laughs> a very Chevy Chase line. <laughs> do you want to go have a shower? The line itself, the delivery, everything was just very Chevy Chase. Yeah. And then he disappears and you kind of forget about him. And at one point I actually paused the movie and I was like, Wait, what the heck did is where it, 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 what happened to Chevy Chase? I wrote in my notes, I expected Chevy to be the star and really Goldie Hawn is the star of this. Film. Yeah. But you know, I, I mean, I thought she, I thought she did a great job in this, in this role, uh, which we will talk about when we come back. This is Foul Play. And this is Foul Play. Foul Play, a new comedy thriller starring Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase in his very first motion picture. When when you first saw me, what did you think? I thought you were a boy. I'm kind of a nice guy, and you're really a very lovely girl, with or without your cleavage. And Kelly, what do you say? Would you like to take a shower? Careful here, it's very slippery at night. Okay. Just hold on to the rails. Okay. What about before that? Before? Yeah, when you very first laid eyes on me, what were you thinking? Um. I thought you were a klutz. Excuse me. Oh, you know something? I'm really glad that you were assigned to protect me. I do my job. 
pretty well. You do your job very well. Thank you. Foul Play, a new comedy thriller coming this summer from Paramount Pictures. Hey guys, we're back and we're talking about foul play. So kind of like you were saying earlier, Wes, this is a kind of strange Chevy Chase movie because he and Goldie Hawn both have top billing there on the poster, but it's really more a Goldie Hawn movie. Yeah, and it and it was apparently his first starring role, right? Now, was well, this come out in 78, right? Yes. So he he would have probably been more well known for SNL, I guess. When did SNL start? I don't really know a lot about the early history of SNL. I don't remember exactly when SNL came out. I want to say 60s or 70s. Well, it, would, it would have been 70s, I think, but I just don't know exactly when in the 70s that, that SNL started. But I know he was kind of like a big star, and I think it was only on maybe the first season or two of SNL, and then left due to like some personality conflicts, and that's when kind of Bill Murray was brought in. Um, yeah, that timeline seems correct to me. And it looks like he was on in 75 and left in 76. Yeah. So I, I guess maybe was that what he was mostly known for it to be cast in this film? Cause it was his first starring role. It looked like on IMDb, maybe he had had a few other small parts and things, but the trailer says it was his first starring role. Um, so I, I mean, I, yeah, I was surprised by that because growing up, you know, Chevy Chase was such a huge star. Um, that I expected him to be kind of like the the main man in this, but but Goldie Hawn was the main lady in this. Yeah, and I, I like you. I was I was also surprised by that, and I do think that SNL was sort of his uh, Chevy Chase's biggest claim to fame at the time, and I do think he sort of fit the general structure of the film pretty well because even though it is narrative driven and there are multiple threads holding it together it almost seemed at times like the movie was comprised of a number of different sketches Mm. that were all tied together by several different elements including the narrative and sort of some coincidental character recurrences and i'm I'm, did you ever kind of have that thought as well while watching sort of um i could see that I could see that. And like, like I said, I, I guess you, I would have described the, the humor in this movie as situational, but I, I see what you're saying because I guess maybe the, 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 the narrative kind of led from one sort of situation to the next and kind of the humor was built around those different situations, you know, misunderstandings and misdirects and things like that. Um, that, and it kind of moved from one to the next, maybe like a set piece sort of. Exactly. Yeah, that was that was sort of the impression that I got. And speaking of misdirections, I thought one of the funniest moments in the film, well, two of the funniest moments in the film. So Burgess Meredith appears as Mr. Hennessy, who is Gloria's, I guess, her super. Yeah. And he has a pet snake. Yeah. And you just see the snake right after Gloria has uh, witnessed Bob dying. 
and she's been warned to be aware of the dwarf and you see the snake sneaking towards her and you think maybe it's been put there to kill her but nope it's mr hennessy's pet snake and then the other big misdirect is so much of the film centers on the carton of cigarette the pack of cigarettes with the film in it yes and you think it's going to be important it is the the i mean there are these close-up shots where the camera centers in on it and this happens throughout most of the film. And then in the third act, it just gets burned in a fire and you never find out what was on the film. Right. And that was okay. So that is a question I was going to ask you that you have now confirmed. I didn't just miss something. We never found out what was on that film. No, we we did not. So at all that, that film obviously is the, the, the canister of film in the cigarettes is the MacGuffin of this movie. Um, and I just really, I thought that was interesting. I love a good MacGuffin in a film. Um, if people don't know what a MacGuffin is, honestly, I'm going to have a hard time. Maybe I should have looked up the definition and put it into better words, but, um, a MacGuffin is like a, is like an object that the sole purpose of that object is to drive a plot along basically. Um, sometimes it's been, it's been criticized, you know, for being sort of deus ex machina and things like that, but. I really always like a good MacGuffin. Maybe it's because I love things like the Maltese Falcon and stuff like that. But um, I, I really liked that. But I did think it was interesting that <laughs> essentially they just, and maybe that was part of the the satire of the film is that it was a MacGuffin. So really the only purpose of it was to drive the plot. And once it was done, we didn't need to, or I guess another famous one would be the suitcase from Pulp Fiction, right? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And then I I would even add to that, I think there is sort of another MacGuffin, and that it would be the dwarf or yeah. Rupert Stiltskin, because yep. at the beginning of the movie, Gloria is told, beware of the dwarf. Right. And eventually you find out that the dwarf is not an actual dwarf. He is a hitman. Rupert Stoltzkin, who goes under the moniker the dwarf. Yeah. So you think that uh, you find out that he's going to kill the Pope. And you think that he's going to, there's going to be some confrontation. And no, he actually is killed. Yeah. By having a bunch of wine racks knocked over on top of him. Yeah. He's killed fairly easily. And he's barely in the movie. Mm hmm. In fact, Whitey Jackson, the uh, the albino who is in cahoots with the dwarf, is in the film way more than the dwarf. Way more, yeah. And so I'd, I'd say that is even sort of a MacGuffin because you think he's going to be the ultimate villain, and he's sort of a villain, but not really in. He's not really an important character in foul play, aside yeah. from kind of being in a menacing off-screen presence. Right, and just kind of driving the the narrative along again with that whole "beware the dwarf" thing. Exactly, which, which of course leads to a another really hilarious scene with Billy Barty as um, a Bible salesman. So, if people don't know, Billy Barty was a famous little person actor. Um, I loved him in Willow as the chief of the uh, the Nelwyn village, but. Um, the reason I wanted to bring him up, Mo, was because this was one of three connections. I like very loose connections I found to other movies that we talk about a lot. Uh, and of course, Billy Barty was in Masters of the Universe. Uh, 
and so he played the the maker of the cosmic key in that movie oh i didn't realize that yeah he had so much makeup on in masses of the universe but as soon as i saw billy barty i just wanted to text you and be like the cosmic key but i didn't i saved it till now <laughs> oh man i, I man, we you know we both love that movie i know we talk about it tangentially on a lot of episodes <laughs> so i feel like at just, some point we're gonna have to review it sure it's uh it, we want to make sure the build-up is there we want to make sure the people are excited to hear us talk about masters of the universe uh plot twist every cell- celluloid fiends episode is actually just a subtle preview for the eventual masters of the universe episode the big one <laughs> uh but yeah so do you want to do you want to tell us a little bit more about that scene yeah so billy barty shows up and obviously by this point um gloria goldie hawn's character is freaked out because she's been looking out for the dwarf this whole time and then there was a uh there was a, a moment when one of her co-workers she works at the library and there was a moment where one of her co-workers told her that a, a little person had stopped by looking for her, and so she, she's been all freaked out and then he comes in and it's another really good moment of I keep forgetting the term you're using, but where their, their dialogue is, they're missing each other's meanings. Um, and he is, he's got something in a case and he comes in and he's like, you know, I've been looking for you. Um, I have something here for you. Uh, I'm going to bring you eternal peace, eternal rest and like all this stuff. And he is a Bible salesman. So he's talking about looking after her afterlife, but she is interpreting it all as he's going to murder her. And so she, he starts to open his case full of Bibles and she gets freaked out and like throws him out a window. Um, the whole thing was just really funny to me. And I just really love Billy Barty. He just plays that. I guess maybe he got typecast as that sort of thing, but he just does it so well. And this, that whole scene was really funny to me. And then she goes and visits him in the hospital. And it's even funnier to me for some reason, because she feels so bad, but you can tell he's petrified over the whole time that he's in his hospital bed. I just really thought that scene was really funny as well. Yeah, in fact, I'm, it was a it was a pretty short scene where she goes to visit him in the yeah. hospital. But I loved the fact that it was in there because, like you like you mentioned, she just feels so bad, and f- you can tell Goldie Hawn uh, just looks like super upset in that scene, and he he, he just looks so terrified and yeah. at one point there's a fly that lands on him and he's in basically a full body cast so he can't uh, and f- kind of whisk it away or anything and she picks up a magazine to swat it and he, he just freaks out yeah it's great and she doesn't even realize why he's so scared it's so i don't know the whole thing's really great and i thought he did that very well and i was really glad to see him in this film and another person i was really glad to see in this film that i should have mentioned earlier uh, when you were asking me about favorite scenes, was um, Burgess Meredith, who you just said. I love Burgess Meredith because I love Ro- the Rocky movies so much. Mickey in the Rocky movies is one of my all-time favorite characters in f- any film ever. I also really loved him in Clash of the Titans, things like that. Um, I just was really stoked to see uh, Burgess Meredith show up in this. And he, in this movie, is a black belt, which people who have listened to previous episodes maybe will know. Like I'm, I love martial arts and all that stuff. And he's a he's a black belt, and at the end, he has like a full blown karate fight with the the female villain that I, that is another one of my favorite scenes in this whole movie. And then when he finally dispatches her, he just turns around and says, "She was a tough old mama." <laughs> it just really made me laugh so hard old man Burgess Meredith like he's a short little guy anyway just running around doing karate moves it was just the best man I I love Burgess Meredith 
Yeah, you know, he's one of those actors that no matter what he's in, regardless of the role, he is always solid. And yeah. one film that I want to plug real quick while we're talking about him is Magic. Okay. It was, uh, I want to say, 76, 78, around then. And it stars a young Anthony Hopkins. Oh, I don't know that one. Very solid film. Interesting. Uh, I, I highly recommend checking that one out. Okay. Uh, and you know, like you mentioned, that fight scene is just absolutely hilarious. Right. And both of the, the both of them, Mr. Hennessy and it was Delia Darrow or uh, Gerda Caswell. I'm glad you remembered that. <laughs> uh, so the two of them are just picking up every object in the room. At so one point, uh, the Burgess Meredith brandishes a potted plant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pulls it out of the pot and brandishes it at her. Yeah. <laughs> He's like shaking the roots toward her. And it is just riotously funny. She chops, she does a karate chop and breaks a table. Like, it's, I was not expecting that. Like, she does a karate chop early on and breaks a table. Everything in that scene just gets broken. Yeah. And then he, he ends it by knocking her out and closing her in a piano and saying, She was a tough old mama. Oh, uh, and and uh, so what, what? What we're talking about the third act? I, I think one of the highlight scenes was also just the final confrontation. Yeah. <laughs> so Whitey Jackson is the one who's going to ultimately assassinate the uh, Pope, Pope Pius the Thirteenth, because there was a contingency plan in case anything happened to the dwarf. So Lieutenant Carlson shows up. Uh, Gloria shows up and they're aided by some some police who are at the theater, the opera house where the Pope is watching an opera. And there's this backstage fight. And in the process, a uh, cop is is shot and falls onto the rigging, as is Whitey Jackson. So the rigging ends up lowering and there are two dead bodies on there, and the entire opera house is silent. And the Pope is completely oblivious to what's going on and just looks so happy and starts clapping. Yeah. And then everybody starts clapping. Yeah. And it was just, I think, a, a really hilarious moment there, just having him be completely oblivious to what was going on. Yeah. Yeah, when it, because when the, the ship came down, which I don't know anything about that particular opera. I don't know if that ship was even part of the opera, but uh, the, that came down and it, I, it did look very cinematic. I guess if you didn't know that opera, it looked very cinematic when it came down. But there's like these two bodies strapped to the ship when it falls down. <laughs> and even the the actors in the opera seem confused about what's going on. Sure. It was very clear something was amiss. Uh, and another thing I like about that scene, I don't want to, I don't want to miss out on on the point of all that. But another thing I really like about that scene is at the end, the so they they tell them to put the curtain down and everything, and then the stage manager, so the crowd loves it. Once the Pope starts clapping, everybody's clapping, and then the crowd loves it. Uh, and then the stage manager tells them to raise the curtain again, and Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase are having their 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 big you know kiss. They've gotten together and they got having their big kiss, and so they're in the middle of the stage. And Stanley is there, as we mentioned earlier, as the uh, conductor of the orchestra. And he looks up and sees her. So at first he's just like, this 
this lady again. And then he sees her kissing Chevy Chase and sees his badge. And he just like leans down under his little <laughs> conductor stand and comes back up with like these big dark sunglasses on and is like trying to hide from him because he's the cops. I don't know. That made me laugh yet again. Good, good on you, Stanley. The the sunglasses, I think, were a phenomenal touch. Yeah. <laughs> as if that's going to conceal his identity as yeah. Stanley. <laughs> this is funny to me. He's a funny that he stole the show. That, that character was great. Yeah, I I agree. I think he was a he was my favorite character. But this is a movie billed as a Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn picture. So I was kind of curious how this ranks compared to some of your other favorite Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase movies. So in terms of Goldie Hawn, um, I actually, she's another one that I don't know a ton about. Um, I've seen three now, three movies that she is in. Um, Mostly I'm familiar with Overboard, um, which I love. She was also in Death Becomes Her, which I like, but I don't revisit a lot. Um, But she was in Death Becomes Her, but she was in um, Overboard with uh, the greatest actor of our generation, Kurt Russell, uh yet another connection to a movie that comes up in the celluloid fiends ethos quite a bit is that she is long-term partners with kurt russell the star of big trouble in little china so that is the second connect very tangential connection i found to a movie we talk about a lot um but i so i don't know a lot about her honestly i i i wouldn't rank this i would probably rank this over death becomes her to me now i haven't watched it in a long time but I would not rate this rate this over um, overboard. I think overboard is such a hilarious comedy, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of similar. It has a similar, you know, romantic backdrop. I mean, the story is nothing alike, but it has a, a similar like romantic uh, entanglement uh, at the you know behind the comedy that's going on. Um, but I I would rank overboard above this one. I think now in terms of Chevy Chase, I have always loved Chevy Chase um, ever since I was a kid. Obviously the vacation movies are just some of my favorite movies of all time, including European vacation, which a lot of people don't like, but I mean, it is what it is. I always thought European vacation was hilarious. Uh, the part about look kids, there it is. Big Ben parliament. I have made that joke. <laughs> I don't know how many times in my life. I love it. Um, and another of my favorite Chevy Chase films is spies like us. Which uh, with Dan Aykroyd, which I really like as well. So once again, I wouldn't rank this one above any of those. I would put it above things like I didn't care for nothing but trouble um, all that much when I saw it. Um, trying to think of some others that I would put it where how how I would rank it. But I did like this film, but I, I wouldn't rank it above something like a like a Vacation or um, or Spies Like Us or something like that. I I gotta agree with you uh, on that. I do love foul play. It's uh, I think it's one of my favorite comedies. But I still think when you compare when I compare it to other Chevy Chase films, I gotta put stuff like Vacation and Christmas Vacation and Fletch. I think I just I gotta put all those up there. I actually love Nothing But Trouble, but really, I would have to put Foul Play above Nothing But Trouble. Now, I wonder, I need to rewatch Funny Farm. That's another one that I like of Chevy Chase. I'd need to rewatch it to see if I'd put this or that ahead. Those are pretty close together for me, this one with Funny Farm. Funny Farm's good. One that I've been meaning to watch but haven't yet is Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Oh, yeah. 
and then in terms of Goldie Hawn, so I haven't actually seen a ton of her movies, uh, but I I'm torn about whether I want to put this above death becomes her because i kind of adore death becomes her and i'm just like a sucker for any zemeckis film that i've seen Mm. but i might put this one a little bit above death becomes her uh although i think my favorite goldie hawn movie might be either this or the sugarland express i've not seen that that's a really good film and it's a little bit it, uh, like foul play in that it has a lot of comedic and lighthearted moments, but then it's got some pretty dark spots as well. It's mm. it's definitely not slapstick. Uh, they're 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 very different films in that regard, but it kind of has that weird dynamic of some moments of extreme levity followed by some pretty dark sections. Um. Now, in terms of Chevy Chase, I will say one thing I was thinking when I was watching this is, you know, I think a lot of us in a post-vacation world, I think that the vacation movies and Clark Griswold kind of defines Chevy Chase for a lot of people. Um, I will say that before that, kind of, he plays this character of like, I don't know how else to say it, but he plays like the suave dingbat. You know what I mean? Like he's very smooth in a lot of his roles before that, but he's also kind of like klutzy and stupid. And he he plays that role in this, and I think that you could kind of see the beginnings of that character that would pretty much carry him through until vacation, kind of start here. So I think maybe it hadn't um, really um, come to total fruition just yet with this, but I think that um, you could kind of see the beginnings of that here, where he's a very smooth operator. In a lot of his movies, he like he either tends to be good with the ladies, or at least kind of pretend he he either is or he at least is pretending to be. But at the same time, he's kind of like a uh, a little bit ditzy and clumsy, um, which I really, I really always think is a funny combination. And interestingly, Gloria's character is sort of a mirror of that. Yeah. In a lot of ways. So she is in some ways kind of a little ditzy and unaware of what's going on, but oftentimes is incredibly clever and, Knows and knows what's going on. Uh, for instance, the entire part about the movie theater when she goes to get the manager and comes back, and Bob's body is missing, and no one will believe her. And then there's one part when she gets kidnapped, and you're thinking there's no way she's going to get out of this, and she ends up using. Uh, she had previously been given it was called a screamer. Mm-hmm. And some mace. In fact, I uh, if we want to rewind to that scene where she's given those, I felt like that was a bit of a Chekhov's. Yes, it was for sure. A, a, a Chekhov's bag of uh, of of weapons. So she's talking to one of her friends about picking up the hitchhiker Bob, and the the friend warns her, "Hey, you need to make sure that you're prepared." And she starts showing what's in her purse, including uh, this thing called a screamer. So you push a button and it makes this very loud noise over and over brass knuckles and mace yeah and she she, she used the brass knuckles i I don't so i don't think she actually used the brass knuckles but uh after gloria gets kidnapped 
Um, so her friend had given her those uh, those items previously. So she sets off the screamer and kind of hides behind the door. So then the, the guard who was reading an Archie comic book and cracking up bursts into the room and she pops out from behind the door and maces him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> and the only reason that those items even existed was so that she could get out of that scene. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, but it is. It's like you said. That's uh, Chekhov's uh, bag of weaponry. There. I mean, we we got shown it. We knew why. We knew why she had it, and then she used it. I'm glad she didn't use the brass knuckles because her friend had told her that what you use those brass knuckles for is punching someone in the nuts. So I'm glad she didn't use those. Yeah, pro- probably for the best. Uh, and then there's that hilarious scene that follows up after she escapes. She's climbing down the fire escape and there are these two elderly women playing Scrabble. And one of them spells fuck and then the other one turns it into motherfucker. And it's like these these uh, elderly women who you think are going to be very prim and proper and they're being very crass in their game of Scrabble. You know, man, I loved that scene, too. The more we talk about this, I keep remembering scenes that I thought were really funny. I I thought that scene was was really funny. And they kept going back to it. It kept (laughs) building on it. At first, she put the swear word, and then they just kept building on it and making it longer and longer. I thought it was really funny. And then at one point, she was like, I think you spell that word with a hyphen. Yes. (laughs) Uh, It was just, it was really clever. Uh, And uh, again, it's just, the, the whole movie is just very situational humor. Uh, but one one interesting part of this, which I thought fit pretty well, was the was the music. Uh, it was composed by Charles Fox, and I liked that it kind of had that Hitchcockian vibe that we've talked about a little bit before. But one thing I didn't know going in is that the Barry Manilow classic "Ready to Take a Chance Again" was written for this movie. Yeah, same. I I told you I'd never heard of this movie, but I as soon as that song came on, I recognized the song, and only in kind of reading up about the film did I realize it was written for the movie. That was interesting to me. Yeah, because the song, the theme song, is more famous than the movie that it was written for, which is kind of unusual. Obvious to the fa- obvious for the fact that both of us are movie nerds and we love. Chevy Chase movies and I mean you had heard of this one obviously because you suggested it I'd never heard of it but um, I know I don't think that either of us we talked about this earlier are, are particularly Manilow heads but we both knew this song instantly I mean you know, it's, a, it's a recognizable song yeah no I, I know two Barry Manilow songs or something like that and it's ready to, to take a chance again and Copacabana which is also in this movie why don't we rate this bad boy well I, well, I had a couple before we move into ratings, if you don't mind. I had a couple things. Sorry that uh, I, I did want while we were talking about the 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 music. I wanted to say that I I really liked the score uh, for this movie. I'd never really heard of the composer before Charles Fox, um, but I thought the score was really interesting for this um, for this film. I don't know what you thought about the score, um, but I, I really liked the fact that the music for the most part was like thriller music, like it was music that set up the scenes and they like, built tension. And then it was mixed in, especially in that final scene, uh, with music from the opera, from the Mikado. Um, I, I just thought it was, I really liked, especially the music in that final scene, when they're doing the car chase, and they're trying to get to the opera, and it keeps intercutting between those two things. And you have the car chase music, and then the opera music, and it just was really, 
woven together very well. And I, did, I really liked the score a lot in this movie. I didn't know what, if you had any thoughts about the score, if you knew anything about Charles Fox. So I absolutely loved the score. And like you, I appreciated that it had that thriller vibe to it because it's this is a this is definitely a comedy, but it pays uh, homage to Hitchcock. Yeah. And and the thriller genre at large as well, but specifically Hitchcock. And so I thought the soundtrack really kind of helped to drive that home. And even when there are very lighthearted moments, kind of still reinforce the idea that it's sort of a, a parody of and, and homage to thrillers. Uh, I actually was not familiar at all with Charles Fox. Uh, I did look up some film scores that he did. Uh, he apparently scored over 100 films, including Barbarella, The Green Slime, oh, wow. A Separate Piece, The Last American Hero, The Other Side of the Mountain, Nine to five. Okay. There we Strange go. Strange Brew. National Lampoon's European Vacation. Okay. A movie that I actually love. All right. Gotcha. Short Circuit 2. Oh. The Gods Must Be Crazy 2. Okay. Oh, part two. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I've seen part two. Nor I. Uh, and, and a number of other films. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of surprised that i'm not more familiar and that and that you're not with charles fox considering how into movie soundtracks the two of us are yeah but yeah no i i loved the soundtrack i thought it fit really well uh and i thought it really enhanced a lot of the visuals yeah and it added to that sense of um like you said, of the thriller aspects instead of, you know, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like kind of music, you know, it was thriller music. It was like adding to the suspense. So, And kind of like you mentioned about the opera pieces as well, the film actually opens with an archbishop who promptly gets knifed and he puts on a, an opera record. That, and that so the, it's kind of bookmarked. It's kind of bookended yeah. mm-hmm. a little bit where you hear it at the beginning when he puts the record on. And then at the end, the Pope is watching that opera. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So I sort of, I sort of liked that kind of uh, element there. Yeah. Kind of circles back to the first scene. Yeah. Sorry, so I just wanted to make sure to talk about the music because I loved it while we were talking about the theme song. Now, if you'd like, I'm prepared to rate this bad boy. All right. All right. Am I going first? Yeah. All right, I'll go first. Um, so I I, I did enjoy this movie. I had never heard of it before. Um, it was funny. It wasn't really necessarily a knee slapper from start to finish for me, but I did really enjoy it. It's the kind of movie that I I feel like an experience that I missed out on was this seems like the kind of movie that I should have seen like on TV when I was a teenager on like a Saturday afternoon. And I would have just really loved to watch this on like TNT on a Saturday afternoon. It just really, I don't know what about it struck me that way. It was just kind of like a fun comfort watch that I could see just watching on a, you know, in the middle of the afternoon on TV or something. Um, I'm going to give this movie three stars. I'm going to give it three stars. I think it's a little above average. I guess average would probably be 2.5 right in the middle of the, the five star scale. 
Um, I don't like it as much as, you know, something like like Vacation or even Spies Like Us, which I've mentioned a few times and is really one of my favorite comedies. But it was funny. It was entertaining. Obviously, we've talked about it this whole time, and there's there's a lot to like about it. There's a lot of scenes that were really funny. Um, but just overall, I think I'm going to put it at three stars for me. And I am going to give it a 3.7. Yeah. I, I really I really waffle back and forth because I, I definitely don't think it's a, a perfect film. I think a few scenes kind of go on for too long, such as I think the romance scene on the on the, the houseboat. Mm-hmm. That to me just kind of seemed a little perfunctory and like it wasn't crucial to the plot and like it dragged on for a bit too long. Uh, so I feel like there are a couple minor pacing moments, but Overall, I think it's a really funny film. It's very situational. And I think it has a great cast. I I don't think I could say it's my favorite Chevy Chase film or my favorite Goldie Hawn film per se. But yeah, I think it's this just tragically underappreciated and under the radar film that definitely has its moments. I'll second that. So yeah, if you if it's been a while since you've seen this, like me, I I would highly recommend going to track down a copy and checking it out. Or if you've never seen it before, I think it's I think it's worth renting or buying it to yeah. watch it for the first time. I really enjoyed it. I'm I'm glad you suggested it. I have um I have one final note that I wanted to bring up, and I, I couldn't find a good time to say it. So I feel like I do that a lot, but this is the time I'm going to bring it up. I thought it was interesting. So this is my third tangential connection to something we've talked about before. Um, in Sweden, this film was released and it was retitled to kind of play on the Hitchcockian elements. So to make it kind of play off of the man who knew too much, they called this film The Girl Who Knew Too Much in Sweden, um, which I find interesting because our last episode was about Deep Red, a famous giallo. And what's usually considered to be the first ever giallo film was Mario Bava's The Girl Who Knew Too Much. So I thought that was just kind of an interesting uh, coincidence that last week we were talking Giallo. I think I even mentioned The Girl Who Knew Too Much, Mario Bava's film. And then it turns out in Sweden, this movie was called The Girl Who Knew Too Much. And apparently after that, um, other Goldie Hawn movies, when they were released in Sweden, were called The Girl Who Did This, The Girl Who Did That. Um, Overboard is titled The Girl Who Fell Overboard in Sweden. (laughs) No. That's it. Uh, Well, that's pretty on the nose. Yep that's funny yeah i so i did i did read that uh and i i love all these uh tangential connections i just couldn't help it as noticing as, yeah as i was watching it i was like oh we talk about kurt russell and big trouble in little china all the time oh look the girl who knew too much it was just kind of i just kept noticing it that is hilarious all right well that's our show for the night thank you guys for listening and you can check us out at celluloid fiends on facebook and twitter as well as celluloid fiends pod on instagram and you can follow me at mitchell c long on twitter and instagram yeah and you can read my writing on film at cupofmo.com and my tech reviews tutorials and more at techuplife.com and, uh, and once again, um, you can find me um, at, at Cliff Weston on Instagram. If you want to check out my writing, I'd really appreciate it. I've got some stuff uh, in the works. I've got a story coming out soon. I've got a 
poem that's already sold that should be coming out in an upcoming issue of Weird Book. Um, so you can check out my writing at wdclifton.wordpress.com. And a final note that I'll say, Mo and I, um, and, and Gabe as well, when he's on the show, um, we love talking about films. Uh, we would be doing this even if we were just sitting around in the living room talking about films. Um, but one thing I would really love is to talk to our listeners about films as well. So I know we would really love to have conversations about films in our social media and things like that. So uh, make sure that if you're listening, you know, go check us out on social media, communicate with us, tell us what films you like, what films um, that you want us to do, or even just kind of what your thoughts are on the films that we're discussing. So just, uh, yeah, let's talk films. Let's have a community. Yeah. And to, to second that, if you have stuff you want us to review, let us know on any of our social media channels. If you go to iTunes and leave us a review and leave us a rating, let us know in a review what you want us to review. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Peace. Stop it, please. For God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to... Please stop it. Stop it now. Turn it off. Turn it off. Stop it. 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 Stop it.